Welcome back to season five of That's What She Did podcast. We're dedicated to amplifying the voices of the women leaders, innovators, and rebels you don't already know. We highlight everyday women who are impacting today's social issues while also centering the voices of women of color. In short, we curate the stories of brilliant women. This season, we're bringing you Women Who Disrupt. Each episode, you're going to hear from an impactful and inspiring woman push your thinking, challenge your assumptions, and most importantly, inspire you to find a way to create impact in your corner of the world. I'm Tangier Renee, creator and host of That's What She Did. Thank you for joining me and your fellow inspiration junkies as we learn from and connect with today's brilliant women. Hey friends, I'm your host, Tangier Renee, and you're listening to That's What She Did podcast. This is episode 12 of season five. Before we get started, I just have to pause and point out that After this week, there's only three episodes left in this season. This season has flown by, and we've continued to grow and get new listeners during what is only able to be described as this crazy, unprecedented times. I want to thank you for your continued support of this show, for showing up week after week and listening to these episodes and learning about these incredible women that are doing things all over the world and trying to make an impact exactly where they are. I know that you could be spending your time with anyone, doing anything, or listening to anyone else. So I appreciate that you continue to show up, support this show, that you're listening, and that you are sharing the show That is how this show has grown. It's because of our listeners. Every week you continue to talk about this podcast and let other people know what you're listening to and why they should listen to it. So thank you so, so much. And again, there's only three episodes left and then we're taking a break, but we will be coming back for season six and we're doing the She Wrote That season, which means it's gonna be all women, who are authors writing incredible books that are impacting today's social issues. And it's authors from all genres. Now, keep in mind, there are approximately three spaces left for guests to be on the show. So taking direction from the wonderful ladies at Amplify Latinx from last week episode, if you know a woman or three women, especially women of color that should be a guest on this show for next season and season six, and they are authors, I want to know about it. Send me an email to that's what she did podcast at gmail.com. Or you know what, hit me up on the gram. I get DMs there all the time. Feel free to DM me on Instagram. That's what she did podcast is the handle. And if you are an author and you wrote a book that has something to do impacting today's social issues, it could be fiction, it could be true crime, there is going to be a true crime author on next season. It could be poetry, it could be biographies, whatever it is, I want to hear about it. So shout yourself out. Let me know what you're doing in the world. That's how we mostly find guests for this show is usually somebody tells me that they should be on the show and we reach out and we try to get them on here. So if you are that woman or you know that woman, 
let us know. Again, email me at that's what she did podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your continued support. Now, I want to introduce you to this week's guest, and that is Simone Ross. So Simone Ross is a catalyst change maker for organizations. She is out here elevating opportunities for women and people of color, and she runs her own consulting firm where she works with corporations around equity, business enterprises, and she's so, so fun. She also happens to be an auctioneer. I mean, how many people are auctioneers? It's it's hilarious. I know Simone personally. I've been excited to get her on for this week, and we're just going to break it down. She also happens to be, and I think this is one of the coolest things ever, in addition to being an auctioneer, she is was recently named one of Denver Business Journal's 40 Under 40 Business Leaders of Most Influential um, Women in Business in in Denver. It's pretty impressive. She's so, so cool. She's the kind of person that you just want to go to brunch with and have like boozy mimosa brunch day with. So let's hang out with Simone a little bit. Let's jump in. Welcome to the show, Simone. It's so great to have you here. Oh, thank you for thinking of me. I admire everything you're doing. Oh, thanks. That's nice to hear, especially since we're all still stuck in the house trying to do our part not to spread the virus, but, you know, going slightly crazy at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Every morning I'm like, did that happen? Yes, <laughs> that happened. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. At this point, I can't keep the day straight. It could be, you know, Tuesday or Thursday from a year ago at the moment, depending on your understanding of the time-space continuum. And I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> nope. And then there's the sleep schedule thing where you like wake up at 2 a.m. ready for the world. <laughs> yep. That actually happened to me this morning. I woke up right at 3 a.m. and I was just up and I was like, well, this is not a good thing. I have a class to teach later today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome to a pandemic. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But Regardless of what's happening um, around the world and the craziness, I, we have been trying to schedule to get you on the show for a little while, and schedules didn't match up until magically we all had open schedules. I got time. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. I wanted to talk to you. I think you're a great fit for our season theme, Women Who Disrupt, and you know, what's interesting about how this show works is I choose a theme for the season and then find women who fit somewhere in that broad reaching theme. And what I find is that as we go through the season, there's these commonalities that come up, even though the theme is very broad, it just sort of works out that the women we talk to are kind of having the same kinds of conversations or trying to have similar impacts in the world. And one of the, the similarities that I've seen over and over and over again during the Women That Disrupt season is that women who are very disruptive in their space, at least who've been on this show so far, are really working on and trying to make huge impact in equitable workplaces, um, mm -hmm. equitable workplaces, but also just a more equitable world. 
And you, Simone, as an integrative change management consultant in your business, among other things, Simone does many, many things in the world, very cool things, including being an auctioneer, which just fascinates the hell out of me. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get over that. (laughs) But in integrative change management, you know, you and I have talked a bit about equity, specifically in the workplace. So tell me how you landed on that. How did you get to this place? Inequity, quite honestly. I worked in corporate America um, and in in executive roles for about 15 plus years. Um, And I think when I had that switch that went off in my head, it was I had a, a traumatic exit from a huge corporation with a great mission, actually. Um, but the experience that I had there was so um, inequitable and unfair um, for me that I, I was like, this can't happen. And then when I started talking to some of my peers who were in executive roles in corporations, we kind of had the same script. It was almost like verbatim, word for word list of like microaggressions and then that list was followed by like behaviors that were just traumatic to us um, within the workforce and I was like you know we've got to do something to be more intentional about creating intersectionality in work Um, and so people always say I should probably talk about what a microaggression is like a microaggression is really like anything that is rooted in implicit bias. It could be like a backhanded compliment. It could be like a microaggression is defining a black woman who is brilliant and assertive, but defining this woman as being an angry black woman. And then the behaviors that go with that is going on a smile campaign. So in mm-hmm. my career, I was told that I wasn't collaborative. I my body language was hard to read, that I needed to stage more serendipitous collisions within the C-suite so that I could be more approachable, which then led into a smile campaign led by the, the leader of the large company to where she would have her executives and board members walk by my office, um, peer in my window and say, you need to smile more today. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God, that would make me nuts. And it does. No, I mean, it causes a level of mental trauma in the workforce where it creates senses of distrust. It creates senses of not even really being able to trust or understand your value and your skill set. And those things start to compound. And it's crazy to think that it's all rooted in something as abstract um, somewhat as someone's own bias at play in the workforce that's being the main informant of decisions. And so, you know, those experiences aren't just my experiences. I've spoken to so many women, women of color who've served in executive roles in large corporations. And they're like, tell me your script. And we go through the whole list of microaggressions. And they're like, yep, that's my script. Um, And then on the converse, you see organizations that have failed miserably because they don't incorporate diversity of thought. I mean, the list goes on from H&M with terrible marketing campaigns that are tone deaf and ethnically and racially insensitive to Dove to Gucci. Um, But it becomes glaringly apparent when companies don't have a diverse table and they don't do anything with their diversity. Um, And then, you know, you see that like right at home base where you look at the board of directors or C-suites of many of the leading companies we have even in this city. 
and there's no brown or black faces and there's very few women even of that nature. And so really now my passion has, has come from just those, those traumatic experiences. I had to go to therapy <laughs> just to even <laughs> understand. I'm mean, right. Like you're going to therapy because your boss is abusing you because of bigotry and discrimination. Like it's a thing. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm really working with organizations so that they really understand what equity looks like because a lot of organizations don't even, don't even understand what equity looks like. And they really don't understand the like intersectionality. I think we did diversity so wrong and that it became like a check mark, a checkbox saying, oh, mm-hmm. we got a black girl, y'all. We got our diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one ever paid attention to the importance of intersectionality with the understanding that the true definition of intersectionality is people who have been in underrepresented, unser- underserved areas, and they have experienced some sort of barrier that has prevented them from achieving what the majority is able to achieve and really being intentional about including an intersectional workforce. And so right now, that's my thing. Um, I think it's going to always be my thing because I'm like, I'll be damned if my daughter one day comes home and reads me the same script that I've been hearing my Mm -hmm. entire life. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by Trade and Travel, a game-changing online course created by our episode one guest, Terry Egioma, founder of Invest with Terry. Terry is on a mission to teach at least a thousand people how to make a thousand dollars per day. Imagine what you could do with an extra thousand dollars in a month, let alone making that much in a single day. That's why I'm excited that Terry has made her game-changing program, Trade and Travel, widely available. I'm going to take the course and you can take it too. All you have to do is use the link in the show notes to get access to the course now. Let's learn how to make $1,000 in a day together. I mean, who couldn't use an extra $1,000? I know I can. I mean, who am I? Mike Bloomberg? Of course I could use an extra $1,000. People who have taken the course are actually able to quit their jobs so they can travel the world with all the money they've made learning how to master the stock market. And I'm not ashamed to say that I want that life. You guys, let's trade and travel together. Just click on the link in the show notes and get started now. Use link bit.ly forward slash she did invest to learn how to get started with trade and travel. What does so. it look like for you now in this work to try to create that change to disrupt the corporate system specifically? You know, there's all kinds of different approaches and I don't know what's what's working <laughs> because we still have the same stories, right? Right, right. For me, as I'm working with clients um, and advising, I really have conversations about the differences between mentorship versus sponsorship. Um, Because I truly believe that sponsorship is the point at which um, you can get more equity built into your system. When you have a a C-suite senior level person who says, okay, for these next roles of leadership, actual decision makers within a department or within the C-suite, we are going to really get to know our employees and get to know our team or even somebody externally. And we're going to actually sponsor them into that role where you're saying, I have a seat at the table that this person might not have, 
but for this opportunity that is right for you, that's coming up for you, I'm going to go to bat for you. And I'm going to sponsor and say, nope, this is the person we need to slot into this role for a variety of reasons. And one of them needs to be being intentional about creating an intersectional workforce. And so, um, and, and it's interesting because you see, I'm currently consulting with a client. Um, they have one diverse hire um, in a C-suite level position. And I just struggle with that, but I, I understand the journey. But this woman has single-handedly because she approaches problem solving and hiring with more of a diverse and equitable lens has changed the makeup of that company in a matter of eight months. Mm -hmm. And so it's like when you're intentional about sponsoring candidates into specific roles, um, you have the power to change your ecosystem completely. So oftentimes that happens through a culture of sponsorship. Um, also, I'm really working hard to do some board training um, and some ambassadorship for boards because that's where decisions are made. Mm -hmm. The board of directors hires that amazing chief executor of the organization or that really crappy chief executor of the organization. Um, and so that makes that makes a difference when there's no diversity at the highest level of decision-making within an organization. They continue to make the same mistakes, making the same decisions, looking at problems with the same inequitable lens. And so I'm really working hard to do some work to diversify boards of directors. Um, and then additionally, as I'm doing strategic counseling and change management, integrative consulting is putting an equity lens within that. And so that really comes from looking at the problem like from, from a whole wide scope. So like with COVID, um, I think the biggest kind of Petri dish we've seen with this and applying intersectional problem solving to a problem has been with what the schools have done. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, we need an online, the, pro the, the solution is online learning. Well, had they just left it at that and not actually taken an intersectional lens to create equity, we would all have been left to find our own laptops, figure out our own Wi-Fi situation. Um, but the, the intersectional problem solving that we've seen within education with COVID has been, okay, well, we got to go to online learning. All right. Well, that means that there's a digital divide. Okay. That means that we need to find strategic partners who can help people get internet. Well, that means we also need to understand that our strategic partnerships don't work for everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody's not going to go to Comcast because it requires a social security number. What, uh, what about our refugee population? Well, then that means we need to get mobile hotspots for those people. Okay, well, then that means we need to subsidize public libraries so that people can be in the parking lot so that they can educate their children. That means we need to get, you know, and so it was interesting just to see the intersectionality. And I think that could be a good thing with COVID. People are doing a lot of intersectional problem solving. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the mandate, like, let's get some masks. But then people are looking at it with an intersectional lens and saying, but we need to advocate for black men because they're not safe wearing masks. Um, and so I think this thing, if anything good has come from COVID, is that people are actually starting now to have conversations and doing problem solving um, with intentionality around intersectionality and how our decisions um, impact everybody. Because we've now learned that everyone's one problem is everybody's problem, mm -hmm. regardless of, of what group it faces. I think so that's... Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about COVID to me, what I've observed is that it is you know, people saying that it's it's changing the world. And, and I'm not so sure that it's changing the world. I think what it's doing is it's accelerating things. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, things that were were not good are amplified. So there's like an accelerated 
pace to getting to a solution or it just, it really opened up the fissures in the systems that we have and forced the us to have to deal with them. Like schools have known that there's a digital divide for a very mm-hmm. long time, <laughs> but they weren't dealing totally. with it because they didn't have to. And so it accelerated, even though I think we all knew that we were going to be at this place eventually where online learning was the norm and not the exception and that we were going to have to solve all these problems to make that accessible to everyone. There wasn't a lot of work happening around that because they didn't have to. They just didn't have to. No, exactly. And so here we are. And that's when we solve our problems most. We do it when it slaps you upside the head and you have to. Mm -hmm. Um, But it has been interesting to see that people are starting to look at solutions building um, some people from an intersectional lens, because we could get, we could talk on and on about the inequities within the FBA. Um, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> funding disbursement. So we'll save that for maybe another podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it is good because people are having conversations because even four years ago, I don't know that we would have a, co- a conversation at the gubernatorial level saying there are health disparities within communities of color. Mm-hmm. And we need to talk about the reasons why. We need to talk about the jobs they're getting. And then we need to do an examination of the systems that we've created, again, that have created barriers for these people to be placed in these vulnerable situations disproportionately. Right. Um, and so I'm excited. To, I'm hoping to kind of be a leader of having those conversations um, because those conversations that we needed to have but we've had almost the safety of archaic systems that we know most to be able to kind of hide behind and not have those conversations. Whereas now everything is kind of blown up as we know it. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have, we don't have the safety shield of an archaic system to say, this is the system. This is how it works. Now we're saying, well, holy crap, we got to create new systems. And so in my work, whether it's um, philanthropic or whether it's actual work work, um, that's kind of the thing that I'm that I'm looking to do, and I'm trying to be bold, as bold as possible, and saying most of these systems are archaic, and most of these systems have been built to further disenfranchise marginalized people. So, since we're rebuilding systems, re- rebuild them the right way. Mm-hmm. We can talk about equity and accessibility. Um, for me, my thing is corporate, just because it's incredibly passionate um, for me based on my own personal experiences, but it's cool to see a lot of change champions kind of waking up and, and taking this on from a variety of systems, whether it is health or small business or entrepreneurs, or even talking about the inequities of, of venture capital funding for small firms. Um, people are taking this work on and, and they're calling it out. Mm-hmm. Let's hope it sticks. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that the real equity change real, you know, on a meaningful level that creates systemic wide change is mostly about the leadership? Absolutely. I think, I think it is about, I think it's a hundred percent about the leadership's ability to be able to recognize disparities and inequities and be a strong enough leader to delegate, be bold and be courageous. And, and doing the work to fix those things. And I say delegate because it takes the team. Like we're seeing a lot where there's inequities being in perpetuity, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're seeing that on a federal level right now where, you know, there's systems being reinforced to perpetuate inequities. Um, so I absolutely think it's at a leadership level, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a pull, it's a push pull. I think that 
people have to demand equity and understand what that looks like and be able to call it out um, and, and request and demand that action and kind of create smaller movements. Um, but I also think that leadership has to lead with a lens of equity um, and with an intense value of intersectionality in how they put together teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to me because there's so many different equity, inclusion, diversity initiatives that happen. And I see most of them happening at the the staff-wide level. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me, especially after um, speaking with an earlier guest who's in this space as well, that, that that's largely around checking the box, right? It's the data. Like they can prove that they did it. But the more I think about it, the more I'm like, well, this is a leadership problem. It's, it's not that it's the, the, the downline employees are, I think, reflecting the realness of what the leadership actually believes without there having to be a conversation about it. Cause it makes me think of like, we work and I know, you know, you know, about, you've been all inside of co-working spaces that are about building community. And I remember when we work like was really big and they supposedly had this whole equity like division, like a department. And it was all about building this equitable culture. And I toured a couple of different we works and I was like, I hate it here. I, you know, I was looking for a co-working space and I just thought it was like, this is the bros club. And this is not equitable. I don't know why they're saying that it is. And then, you know, of course, recently we were completely blew up and we found out from people on the inside that it was never equitable ever. Right. It was just, you know, it was all about the money. And I'm just like, how do you get it so wrong? How do you spend as a leader, like this much money, you create an entire division, you do all these initiatives but it's never actually about that. Well, I've been having conversations about this, even from my experiences in co-working. I mean, it, it comes down to action behind intent and a willingness to place action and mobilization behind intent. And so, for instance, how, how can you be an equity-centric organization and you have no people of color in your C-suite? Mm-hmm. That means you're not putting action behind your intent. Or how can you be an equity-focused organization if you, if the only roles you put people of color in are equity roles? That you're actually, again, perpetuating stereotypes and showing no value for, for intersectional leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, like I hear the excuse day in and day out, we can't find them. I've heard them within some of the organizations I've been intimately involved in when I've said, where are the people of color in your C-suite? Mm-hmm. There are people of color, wildly talented. Um, and the excuse typically is, well, I can't find them. Can't find them anywhere. It's not that you can't find them. It's that you're not placing intentional action behind your intentions. You can't set intent without action. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of these companies go grossly wrong because they they boldly state the sexy thing. And the sexy thing now is, equity. Um, however, they're ill-equipped and their intent, their intentions are not to actually place action behind that. It's not just enough to say we care about equity. That's not enough. You have to become actionable with that thing. 
um, and and you have to be, place intentional action that could cause you not to feel good about yourself some days. But at the point that we're trying to disrupt systems that are so incredibly archaic, sometimes it doesn't feel good. And sometimes there's hard days. Um, and sometimes you have to put your fragility aside and do that work and deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's definitely been an interesting journey, even in, in organizations that are equity organizations where you're like, but are you really, (laughs) are you really though? Because you're not leveraging diverse voices. You're not leveraging diverse intellectual capital. You're again, only placing people around you in your organization that perpetuate your thought process, which is quite frankly, a very, very slim lens. So so those have been interesting realizations too, um, when it comes to disrupting systems. Um, and really kind of finding your place within that journey of disruption is how do you disrupt a system with, with, with good intent, but that's seemingly incapable of placing effective action behind that intent when it comes to equity mm-hmm. and being able to boldly call out leaders and people who are merely exploiting um, the important work that is equity, because there's a lot of people that are just like, if I say the words, I've done it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you don't get to exploit the, the journeys of marginalized people for, for a great Instagram post. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to talk about it, you got to be about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can think of some people off the top of my head that I could call out for their Instagram posts right now. <laughs> oh yeah. We'll, we'll keep that. <laughs> oh yeah. We got We got a list. <laughs> yeah. There's a list out there and I'm just like, stop putting that quote as if you wrote it because you didn't. And we all know right. who actually did. So. Right. Don't put the quote out there as if you wrote it or even trying to live it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, too, it's important to, to dis- disrupt those systems, too, because there's been so many movements that have been that have gained traction on the backs of underrepresented, underserved people that have never been built or meant to serve those people. It's been merely a, a tool for for exploitation. I, I was telling a friend of mine, I was like, it's pimping season. Don't get pimped. Stay woke. Stay woke. Don't get pimped. Hilarious. So here's a question that's been on my mind recently, and I'm not even sure I know a good way to ask this question. So a lot of the work around building equitable spaces, particularly in corporate, is centered around racial and cultural, like ethnic diversity, right? Because to your point, once you start getting into the C-suite, it start, that starts to completely go away. There might be women there, right? But there's probably little to zero women of color or people of color in general. Oh yeah. People from different backgrounds. So I've been seeing some arguments Facebook arguments, which are entertaining, but I try not to engage in them (laughs) around this question of, is it fair? Is it reasonable? Does it make sense for someone who is not a person of color, who is not black indigenous um, or a person of color to be leading equity change work? You know, I have that argument in my head day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've come to the place where um, I'm not going to say it's unfair because, again, I think we need to move. There's equity and I think there's intersectionality. And so 
it's, you know, the social categorizations. It could be race, it could be class, it could be gender, it could be um, anything that creates an interdependency that yields discrimination or being disadvantaged in treatment that creates barriers to access of things. And so, uh, you know, I've heard people, I've seen people that are doing a lot of great work where it's, and it's not obvious where those intersections lie, but they're making waves, influencing and creating positive change. Mm -hmm. I've also seen people who um, do have like, oh, it's a red flag. Oh God, you're a black person. Great. You're doing equity work. And they're not necessarily moving the dial. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, it's important that um, people are moving the dial with their work. Um, I also think it's important to engage allies um, in the work, because the only way we're going to create equitable systems is if allies are also championing the beliefs that intersectionality matters and that it has to happen effective immediately. And so, um, you know, I think you don't have to be a person necessarily who is like obviously in one of these groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do have to be a person that is unapologetically emboldening, progressing the movement. Um, frankly, I've found it far more powerful to hear a white woman call another white woman out on her white fragility. Mm-hmm. They receive it differently. And I'm like, I appreciate you, sis. Thanks for being aware of of your com- how complicit you are in progressing things that don't even deserve time. And I was like, I'm glad you have a good white friend who can call you out on your white fragility. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with that is that at least in my experience, I don't see a lot of white people doing that. No, no, <laughs> it would be great. They, I just don't know. see it very often. It's rare. I don't, I don't either. Um, and I encourage dear white people that are listening, find your voice. <laughs> we can talk, we can do some coaching on this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think too, it's important that they have to give voice and even understand like what these things mean. Cause oftentimes when you, um, have the luxury of walking in a, in a, in a privileged world, you do miss a lot of this stuff. And so much of it is so deeply ingrained into who we are and how we are in our state of being that it goes on unnoticed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think sometimes there's a lot of internal work and exercises and being like, Oh, that's what, that's what that is. Like the way I'm being, the way I'm doing, that's what that is. And I got to flip that. And a lot of that comes with doing a lot of gut checks with implicit bias work. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have them. It's okay to have them. It's normal to have them. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be human if we didn't. But at the point that implicit biases negatively impact the lives and livelihoods of others, that's a problem. Yeah. So I know, you know, this work that you do, around implicit bias and just equity. There's a lot of emotional labor involved with that. There's a lot of labor, emotional or otherwise, just when you are a disruptive woman, right? Because people are always telling you that you're too much. (laughs) They want you to be more quiet and and smile more. (laughs) Yes. Instead of saying- more serendipitous collisions. More serendipitous collisions. I'm gonna have to remember that because it's silly. It's the most ridiculous thing anyone could ever tell you. <laughs> Maybe that's what we'll call this episode, serendipitous collisions. <laughs> Precisely. With all the sarcasm <laughs> in the world. <laughs> but being that woman, the disruptive woman, 
is a tough thing. You you got to build grit. So how have you built that grit? How do you maintain your sense of self and being grounded and whole and healthy and all yeah. of the parts of yourself while also being disruptive? You know, that's a tough question because sometimes the fatigue is just like WTF. Like mm-hmm. I can't fight this fight today um, because it comes at you from all areas and then it triggers things and then you got to work through that. Um, so it's definitely tough. I'm a really big person as far as like mindfulness. Um, I, you know, if I got to take some time and just kind of meditate and go to a different place mentally, like an elevated place mentally, mm-hmm. um, I'm all about mental elevation. Um, and so I'm good about, not as good as I want to be, but I'll, I'll definitely take that time. I'm a big mantra person. And so, um, you know, I'm like with my little mall of beads, I'll be like, you have what you need. You are enough. <laughs> Without, there is no, there is no toil that doesn't have, that yields success. Like, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, I think you have to get into a, like an elevated state of mind mm-hmm. to even figure out how to remotely cope um, with the fatigue um, because it gets incredibly fatiguing. Even when you witness oppressive power dynamics and organizations that are on the right track Mm -hmm. equity and you see that there are oppressive power dynamics at play and you have to coach and figure out how to impact those oppressive power dynamics just because again there's no there's no awareness that these are oppressive power dynamics at play that are impacting people and impacting work and so for me it's therapeutic to call it out because I don't want to carry it with me um, and then I'll just deal with the repercussions of that call out, but it's, a, it's hard to, to harbor those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, definitely the, the adoption of a, of a mindfulness practice makes a huge difference for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, whatever you got to do, right. And then there's Prosecco. There will there's always Prosecco. be Prosecco. <laughs> for me, it's Jack. Like when it's just like, there's Jack Daniels. And that's what I lean on sometimes. <laughs> exactly. There's, you know, hey, <laughs> you got elevated to- state of mind. <laughs> At least a checked out one every once in a while. <laughs> Something. Because this is, it's interesting. I'm like, these are some interesting times. Yes, for sure. Samo, what is the best way for our folks to learn more about you and get in touch? Yeah, you know, I've been directing people to my website because I, as a personal challenge for my mental health, have taken to just doing some blogs that once I start to write them, they get super, super raw and gritty. And I've gotten some pretty cool feedback where people are like, oh, my God, thank you for calling that out. I I felt it. I didn't have the words. So Mm -hmm. you can always go to um, Simone, S-I-M-O-N-E hyphen Ross, R-O-S-S dot com and you can access my blogs i talk about relationships i talk about some of the things i struggled with in my divorce i talk about work i talk about my crazy ass kids um (laughs) who are adorable by the way (laughs) i'm so obsessed with them they they also help in my mindfulness because i just look at their funny little faces and i'm like okay it's not that bad (laughs) um (laughs) so definitely yeah take a visit to my website um you can subscribe to my newsletters and get some of my blogs or whatever a newsletter looks like we'll see maybe i'll maybe i'll have a covid newsletter figure out how to do that um you can follow me on ig i'm at simone d s-i-m-o-n-e-y-d 
it sounds like a rapper's name. It does. I kind of, I'm a, I'm kind of a rapper. We can talk about that. Later. Auctioneering um, is not that, that far away. I think they're probably cousins, no. right? Yeah. They're distant cousins. So yeah. Follow me on IG or subscribe to my newsletter and read some of my blogs, leave comments. I'm always, it's always cool to hear people's comments. Um, usually they turn like the comments are like, Oh my God, thank you for saying that. I'm not crazy. This is real. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you're not crazy. You might be, but no, this is real. What we're talking about right now is real. So you might be crazy. Yeah. You're just not cray cray. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm like, you might be crazy. I am too. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much for joining us, Simone. Um, I'm glad that we finally were able to make this happen pandemic or not. I know. I well, it's glad to see you virtually. I've, I yearn for the day I can hug you. That <laughs> <laughs> we can hang out again, grab a drink or something. That'll be nice. Someday, someday soon. <laughs> I know. I'll probably be detoxing when this is all over. I know, like, right? What is happening? <laughs> I know, right? It's been a lot of jack going through my house lately. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My recycle, my recycle trash is an embarrassment. <laughs> We're getting through it. We're in this together. Exactly. We're in this together. <laughs> oh, exactly. Thanks again for joining us, Simone. And listeners, thank you. Thank you for tuning in every week, for continuing to be a supporter of this show. The best way to support us is for you to share, like you've always been doing and continue to do. That's how we grow. While you're at it, please hit the subscribe button so you do not hit those new episodes as they come out. And Hey, since you're doing nothing right now, maybe, and you might have some extra time, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We appreciate you so much. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next time. We out.